Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. The finely woven rugs, blankets, and tapestries of the Navajo people, or Diné as the Navajo refer to themselves, so you will hear us use these terms somewhat interchangeably today. Those textiles are some of the most well-known and admired in the entire world, which is why we are so excited to bring to you this week an in-depth look into the sacred cultural practice and art form of Navajo weaving. And there is no better way to take that deep dive than with today's guests. And they are the internationally acclaimed authors, educators, and fifth-generation Navajo weavers and sisters, Linda Teller-Pete and Barbara Teller-Ornelis. In addition to producing world-renowned weavings, the sisters have shared their knowledge and personal experience with both Native and non-Native individuals around the world, educating audiences about Navajo history and the practice and preservation of Navajo weaving traditions through numerous classes, workshops, and collaborations with museums, universities, and art centers. And this includes most recently the Bard Graduate Centers, shaped by the loom weaving worlds in the American Southwest, which is on view in New York City until July 9th. Together, they have written two books, Spider Woman's Children, Navajo Weavers Today, which is the first book written about Dene Weavers by Dene Weavers, and also How to Weave a Navajo Rug and Other Lessons from Spider Woman, the first Dene written how-to guide. And we are so pleased to welcome the sisters to the show. Barbara, Linda, welcome to Dressed. I am so excited to talk to you both today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so before we start, we need to introduce ourselves. Um, I'll, I'll introduce us in Navajo, and then Linda will translate it for, for, for us, for the, for the people. Um, so, Shay, Barbara Teller, Ornelas, and Shea, Deja, Deja, Linda Teller, Pete. So, I need to go ahead and see what she's doing. I'm not going to be done, and I'm 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 going to
Um, my sister Barbara just introduced herself. We normally have to recite all four of our clans. We are born for our mother's clan, which is Edgewater. I should say we are born into our mother's clan, which is Edgewater. And we are born for our father's clan, which is two waters that flow together. And then we have to recite all of our grandfather's clans and stuff. And so this is usually how we establish kinship. And if there are other Navajos in the audience, this is how we we uh, learn how to address each other. So it's it's the formality of um, uh, stating who you are, where you come from. And Barbara mentioned that we originally are from the Tugra Hill, Newcomb, Tallina area of the Navajo Nation, where we grew up. There's a huge um, rug weaving community in, in all three of those communities. And uh, that our parents are Sam and Ruth Teller. They both have passed, but they have been very instrumental in how we grew up. And Barbara and I are fifth generation Navajo weavers, and that's who we are. And I was reading too that it, your family tradition of weaving spans seven generations too, because you have not only yourselves, but also yes. your children and grandchildren who are also weavers. I have two children, um, um, my daughter's here and my son, Michael, and they're fifth generation. And then we, Lynn and I share our granddaughter who um, is our, grand, our older sister, Roseanne's grand, granddaughter. And uh, she's our seventh generation. Wonderful. And can you tell us a little bit more about the significance of weaving to your family and your family's history? Well, we we were born into it. So I teasingly talk about this as born into like a mafia. You know, you can never get out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we were born, um, we were destined to be weavers. And as we grew up, uh, Barbara's older than me, and uh, she started her, her uh, weaving under our paternal grandmother. And, um, and then when I came along, when we stayed home for summers, our father built this loom that would, where we would sit facing each other. And so uh, we were expected to weave uh, probably not every day. When you're a kid, you think that you were really tortured by, you know, um, being this child laborer, but it really wasn't true because, you know, now that as I'm, as I am an adult, and I know how much weaving takes place. I know we didn't weave every day. And we didn't weave more than probably 20 minutes at a time. But for me, it was <laughs> it like, just felt you know, it just felt, yeah, as a kid, you just want to play outside and whatever. But uh, Barbara and I sat facing each other. And, um, you know, as sisters, you don't always get along. And so and it's always me trying to instigate something. And so I would pick up my weaving tools and poke it through my warps, trying to bug her as she was weaving. And then, you know, once my, my mother would hear us hollering, she would come and try to put a sheet between the, the two looms so that we wouldn't see each other. And uh, so, you know, those are my earliest memories of growing up and weaving. And, you know, I just assume everybody knew how to weave because in our community, um, there are so many of our extended relatives who were weavers. And, uh, you know, we come from an area, Two Great Hills, where there were rock stars of, of women weavers. You know, Tape, uh, um, Daisy Tuckelchi, she's probably the one, one of the most famous. She's from the Tallina area. There's so many other really well-known weavers that came out of our area, and they're well-known for the Two Great Hills style. And so as we grew up, that's all we knew. I, you know, and, and once we got out in the world, it's when we figured out not everybody knows how to weave, not even all Navajo people know how to weave. So that was a big, it was a big disconnect for me where I couldn't fathom 
uh, Navajo people not knowing how to weave. And Barbara, do you have an earliest memory of weaving? The earliest I can remember is um, sitting with my paternal grandmother, Nellie Teller, and in her hogan in uh, White Rock, New Mexico, uh, which is like between Vistai Badlands and Crown Point. And um, just, you know, they, my, our grandparents live way out in the middle of nowhere, no running water, no electricity, no nothing, you know, coming from our dad being a trader at Tugra Hill Trading Post, so where we used to you know, electricity, indoor plumbing, and you know, all that stuff. And then to go from that to my, our, our um, grandparents' home is just like a real change. But I remember her teaching me and telling me stories and hearing her songs and hearing her prayers and, and um, just, you know, what weaving means to the, our people and our family and how it's important for me to be a weaver. You know, and she always mentioned to me that I was blessed by the weaving gods and that I was given this gift and I shouldn't waste it. You know, I was four, five, six years old, you know, and she was telling me all this. And I'm just, you know, not really paying attention to what what she was telling me, you know. And then one time she woke up from a, a nap and she she was like, I had a dream about you. She goes, I, I saw you traveling the world. I saw you getting on airplanes. I see you telling people about our work. I, I see you uh, telling people that we exist and that you know our work is valuable. And and I just I thought she was crazy. <laughs> and but it wasn't until um, I was um, well, I was going to do a residency at the British Museum in in London. I'm getting on an airplane in Albuquerque. And her words just came back to me. He goes, someday you're going to travel the world and tell people about our work. And I'm like, how did she see this? You know, how, how, did, it, how did it happen? You know, and since and that was like in 19, 1985, somewhere around there. And it was when I was first traveled uh, for my work. And then since then, I've traveled to many, many countries and done a lot of uh, weaving workshops and, and, and with different indigenous weavers all over the world. And her words still come to me, you know, when I get on the plane and I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, grandma, you know, we're, we're going to Uzbekistan, we're going to, you know, Kyrgyzstan, or we're going to Peru or, you know, something. And um, so I, I cherish those moments, you know, being with her. And she started teaching me how to do twill weaving, which is a huge no-no for Tugra Hill weavers, you know. So, but she was a free spirit. She really did any kind of weaving. She put her mind to it. And then when she would do a Tugra, or our maternal grandmother, Susie Tom, would freak out because she's like, she's not a two gray hill weaver. She shouldn't be weaving two gray hills, you know. And but you know, our our grandma Nellie, she just, you know, wove what she saw. She just, you know, and she would um, tell me, you know, see things with your mind, see, you know, see the patterns with your mind. It's all going to come together for you, you know, and I couldn't. You know, I was real young and I couldn't see what she was talking about, you know. So I take a little piece of paper and draw it out, you know, and stuff and stick it under my sheepskin as I'm sitting there weaving. And 
And then in the morning, you know, when she's cleaning, she would shake out my sheepskin and all these papers come flying out, you know, and she's like, you can't do this, you know, you gotta, you gotta see it up here, you know, and, and then just one day it just clicked, it just clicked, you know, and then she kept saying, you were born for this, this is what you were, this was why um, you were given this gift. And I never really understood that until I started teaching my son, you know, and my son, kind of gravitated towards it like he already knew what he was doing you know and and I remember my grandma says I didn't have to tell you two or three times how to do something you already knew once I tell you how to do it and that's my son and I believe that he's also born to do this to be a weaver Absolutely. And you both have really built this incredible life and career sharing your gift and your art and the culture and history of of Navajo weaving with the world. Uh, You've written two wonderful books together. The first is Spider Woman's Children, Navajo Weavers Today, and then most recently, How to Weave a Navajo Rug and Other Lessons from Spider Woman. Both are deeply personal narratives that chronicle also the history and significance of weaving to yourselves and to the Diné people. I'd love if you could share with us who Spider-Woman is and also Spider-Man and what is their significance to Navajo weaving? I'd like to back up a little bit and give you an explanation on um, the two grandmothers. We have a paternal grandmother and we have maternal. And uh, the one that Barbara was speaking of is our paternal. And the economic differences between those two women in that generation, the fourth generation of our weavers, was very, very wide. Our maternal grandmother lived from rug to rug, and she had a hard time making a living because she had two families to support. And while our paternal grandmother had land base, she had animals, she had Um, she didn't need to sell her pieces, uh, uh, rugs. So we have a lot of her pieces still with us because she wove for the families. And because of the two grandmothers being so different, our maternal grandmother had a a second set of family. And so we didn't learn a lot of the history. We didn't learn the things about Spider-Woman from her. Everything that we know about Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, the the gift of weaving, everything, you know, the songs and the prayers came from our paternal side. And uh, on the Navajo Nation, there are a lot of different regions. And where my my grandfather came from, paternal grandfather, is from Canyon de Chez. And Canyon de Chez is home to Spider Rock, where our holy person, our deity, Spider Woman, lived. And so um, the stories that we heard when we were little was about her. And, you know, most of the time, some stories are used for disciplinary things. And, you know, in Spider Rock, they say that bad children get taken up to the top of the rock. rock. And, you know, so you behave. Very high rock. Yeah. (laughs) And so you behave. And, and plus we're visiting, you know, so my parents didn't want us children to be unruly and, you know, just acting crazy like we do at home. And so, you know, at at an early age, we knew that Spider-Woman was a disciplinarian and that she was very focused um, and that she took chances. And Barbara and I are now at a different part in our career where we're teachers, we're authors, we're scholars. And so we talk to our medicine men and we we have three of them that we go to for 
protection and for uh, re-blessings for, you know, to, to bless all of our weaving tools and everything. And the one that we went to from Kenyon Deshaies, we talked to him about the protocols because Spider-Woman and Spider-Man, who was her husband, who made all the tools and looms, had set out some values for weavers to follow. Some of them, I think, are akin to like taboos, like you can't weave at night. You can't weave during a thunderstorm. You can't weave during the rain. These are, you know, things are happening outside that is nourishing the earth. So you have to respect that. Um, and then, so there's all kinds of protocols that we follow that were set by Spider-Woman and Spider-Man. And, you know, how we touch our looms, how we treat our tools, everything. There's a protocol for that. And so as we were talking to the medicine man, he said, you know, when you're starting out, you have to abide by all these rules. When you're growing up in a weaving family, you have to follow those protocols. Um, but you guys, as you go up in your career, you're now at a point where you are spider woman. So Barbara and I refer to ourselves as spider woman. And so he said, those protocols and everything, you have graduated from that. And so we don't have to abide by some of these rules. And because our lives are so busy, Barbara and I travel a lot. We do a lot of consultations with different museums, you know, like the Bard. Uh, we've, been, we've been working on that museum with Hadley Jensen for years. And then COVID happened and we had to put the project on hold. And so a lot of the things that we do because we travel, we have to weave on the off times. So we can't really abide by the protocols that were set. And he said, no, there are certain times that you, you are spider woman you make the rules. And so, you know, that's comfort because uh, there's there's a part of us that, um, uh, you know, we're rule followers. And uh, so we, we get a little bit disoriented, especially with time zones and stuff. And so it's kind of hard to predict, like, you know, should I not be weaving because I'm from the mountain time and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it, it's it's difficult to to follow a lot of cultural rules, especially in this modern day and age. And, and I think that some of those taboos were because of the economic strains on weavers back then, you know, not having electricity, not having butane to, to run their little lamps, you know, so they couldn't weave at night. Um, you know, there's so many things out there that we have to compromise on now because our world is changing. And we are now living in, in a fast paced world with technology. And so we're, we're adapting to that and still using that technology to teach, to um, improve our weaving techniques. You know, we're, we're just going with the times. And so I think that's how Spider Woman meant it to be when she was tasked with her to weave a map of the universe. And so with Barbara and I doing that, we are still mapping things out for our students. Well, and I'm so glad you mentioned that about living in this fast paced world too, because something we talk about a lot on the podcast is just how in this fast fashion mechanized industrial world, there are still people like yourselves who are, are creating using these age-old techniques and traditions and very much keeping that alive and working with your hands and, and you know, the connection to the object and those beautiful histories and stories live on thanks to people like you. And for our listeners who might not know, can you just tell us a little bit more about the Spider-Woman creation story, who she was and who Spider-Man was in relationship to weaving? 
There's so many different versions of, of, of the stories. We all, as Navajo people, have our own versions of the Spider-Woman stories. And then the, the, the stories that we get is from our, our paternal grandmother, Nellie Teller, and our grandfather. And, and he, because he came from Canyon de Shea, we always assume he knew Spider-Woman. As children, we're like, did you really see her? You know, like you, you live in the same area as she did. It was always told as a story, like Spider-Woman wanted to gift the Navajo, weaver, Navajo women um, something that would take care of them and 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 so they don't have to live in poverty poverty they don't have to worry about you know the, their next meal or anything like that she went to our four sacred mountains and she found wood from one of the mountains she found um, plants and stuff colors from one she went to where the thunder gods live in the mountain and asked for designs she um so there's always these different elements that she put together and then she took it and she brought all that with her to to the gods and asked if she could figure out a way to put all this together to create something you know a, as a gift for Navajo women and so they told her that if you um, would watch a spider and how the white uh, the spider weaves a web and then, you know, maybe you can get some ideas from there. So she she observed the spiders for a while, figured out how she was gonna put all those materials that she had together. So she built a loom, you know, and the, the loom that she built, the bottom loom represents the earth bar and the top part of the loom represents the, um, the sky bar. And then the side wood represents day and night. You know, and then you have um, when you have um, your warp set up, you know, the strings that are coming down like that represent rain, you know, and so you have two different warp sets and the top warp is a male warp and then the bottom is the female warp. And it's like that represents male rain and female rain and they switch back and forth and the baton that goes in between the rain is a thunderbolt. It's called Bag English in Navajo, you know, and so she had all these things and, and, and so she was able to put it together and figure out how to put the looms together. And she, when she figured that out, she took it to, and, you know, Spider-Man was the one who built the loom and he was the one who, you know, did most of the grunt work for her. And while she was trying to figure out how to, to do the, the, the weaving part. In the real world, people always say, how come you guys don't copyright your work? How come you don't, you know, you should copyright your work? And we're like, we can't because all those patterns belong to the Thunder Gods. You know, like I asked permission to use them and then I have to put them back because Lynn might be interested in using them. Maybe my daughter wants to use them. Maybe my son wants to use them, you know, or somebody else from a different part of the reservation who wants to use them. You know, so there's, it's really hard to, copyright something that technically doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to you. And she put all these things together and she was able to figure out how to, to, to do the weaving part. And she was able to teach um, Navajo women 
how to to weave. And I remember as a child, my grandfather used to tell me to keep weaving, you know, keep weaving, my little one, keep weaving, because this is going to hold your family together. You'll never go hungry. You always have a roof over your head. And he goes, and that's the blessing from Spider-Woman. And one thing that I want to add, too, is that, you know, when we go through the steps of, um, you know, the sky bar, the earth bar, the day and night, the, the, the female rain, the thunderbolt, and then on the loom, there's that little um, where we had the tension, and that's the um, the rainbow area, not to leave, and that's the very creative part for a weaver. So when you get stuck, you know, you have to put your hands up there and try to work out what is challenging you. And I, I also think that um, Spider-Woman also did not hit upon her formula from the get-go. She had to go through many, many trials. She had, she was challenged by everything. And that's how weavers are today. You know, we get challenged. We, we have to work things out. We have to troubleshoot. And so, you know, what we do is not easy. And the other thing too, is that when we sit at our loom, we're basically sitting at our universe. You know, we have the sky bar, the earth bar, the, the night and day, we have the rain, we have all the, the uh, environmental elements at our loom. You know, every morning that you wake up, you know, after you do your prayers, you sit at your loom and you're basically at the window of the universe and you, you yourself decide how you're going to, to um, turn your day. You know, is it going to be a good day, a good day of weaving? Um, you know, there's, there's also challenges to that. Sometimes your, your designs aren't worked out and then you have to go back to your math. So when Spider-Woman was working things out, she had to implore math, geometry, algebra, all of these uh, STEM subjects were part of creating uh, a weaving. And, and I, I, I think that, you know, once you grasp that math, um, it, it's much easier as a weaver if you know your math. And we also have to go back to the root words of all the supplies that we have. And when Barbara mentioned that her, uh, our grandfather said to her, you know, weaving will feed your family. That is true because the root word of the warp in Navajo is nanolje. And uh, uh, well, the word for warp is nanolje, but the root word of that means hunting, nanolje. That means you go out and hunt and get food for your family. Same thing with the loom. You use your warp to warp your new piece and that feeds your family. So there's a lot of words that are not by accident. They're actually, you know, these things that Spider-Woman and Spider-Man put in place for us to continue to learn on. And we were always told to make sure that we're in balance before you start weaving in front of your loom, you can't be sad, you can't be angry, you can't, you know, um, because your your weaving is a living spirit, and it takes on your, um, it takes on your your feelings, your vibe, you know, so you always have to make sure that you're in balance when you're sitting in front of your loom. We were always told that, um, that you don't talk, ever talk bad about your work, you don't ever say this doesn't look good or this looks horrible. I'm a horrible weaver or whatever, because the rug, the, the weaving will take that on and then it won't shine for somebody to be sold. So 
You have to be very, very careful with your words in front of your loan. You have to be very, very careful just in life, you know, with your words and how you treat your loom, how you treat your people. It's almost the same. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process of weaving, maybe beginning with the loom and the tools? You've written this wonderful book that takes people through that process. And I'd love if you could share a little bit more about it with us here. Well, I can talk about the preparation of the weaving part, and then then I'll talk about the tools, you know, and uh, because her husband's the one who makes all our tools. A A long time ago, like when my mom and my two aunts and my uh, grandma grandmothers were here, um, both aunts would have uh, had flocks of sheep and they would all get together and they would shear um, all the wool from the sheep. And, you know, as, as two gray hill weavers, uh, the most prized um, wool you can have is the dark brown, you know, that beautiful uh, dark brown that, that we use as our infill color. And so they always cherish that. Then that's the most thing they take care of was that. 
you know, but they would all get together and they would all shear the sheep and they would all start, you know, washing them and cleaning them and stuff and then putting them out outside so they can dry. And then once it's dried, you know, they would, you know, it was our job as kids to sit there and fluff up the bowl so it doesn't uh, felt. And after fluff it up and then, you know, they have groups of, of, of like my cousins and, and my aunts and, uh, and they would sit there and they would card the bowl. And then they, you know, once the carding was done, then somebody would be in charge of doing first spin and then second spin, third spin. Third spin was like the finest that you can do. And then that in between there, you have like white wool and you have black wool. And the black wool is dyed with aniline dye, but it's dyed before it got spun into a yarn. And so because a lot of it was used to mix colors, and so you had your carding, um, carding tool where you put a little bit of white and a little bit of black, and then you mix it and you get different shades of gray. Or you put a little bit of brown and a little bit of white and you get different versions of light brown. And depending on how much color you put in from, if you put a lot more white and then a little bit of black, you get the light grays. Or if it's reverse where it's more black, then white, then you get the dark grays, you know? So they, they just had a technique and they had a system down that they used to, to, to make. And their motto was always make sure you make way more than enough because you just, you need, you know, this yarn to last you at least two or three pieces. And, and, but they would sit there and they would laugh and they would tell jokes and they would drink coffee and have donuts, you know, and stuff. And, it was just like a, a party, you know, you always wanted, you, you know, being from a, going from being a fluffer out to, to learning how to card and then learning how to spin. That was the ultimate was learning how to spin. That was for the whole process. My favorite part was the spinning. That was always my, you know, and I really learned how to spin watching my mom and my older sister, Roseanne. And Roseanne was an excellent spinner. Her techniques was amazing. I watched her all the time and try to, you know, do how she how she did it and stuff. And and it was really a huge family event that that they used to do. And then later on, you know, everybody got older, and both our aunts lost all their flocks because they they were they were elderly and they they couldn't take care of their sheep. So. Their children, our cousins, decided to get rid of all of the sheep, and they did. And so Lynn was Lynn and I were left with no raw wool to 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 work with, you know. And so she discovered um, the um, wool festivals, and she goes, "Well, we got to go to these wool festivals because they have wool, and but they're already they're already milled and they're they're in roving." You know, and you can just take the roving apart and, and spin them, you know. So that kind of eliminated the carding part. And just we just started going to spin, which is really nice because I really didn't like the carding part. <laughs> and so, you know, and so we, we work on a process like that. And, you know, it's my job now because our mom is gone. Our older sister is gone. All our, we only have one aunt left, but all the other ones are gone. And, and so it was kind of, kind of left to me to do the spinning, you know, so I spin for myself and for Lynn 
and my son, my daughter, and my granddaughter, five people. You know, so I have to make a lot of um, material, and then I have to split it five ways between all of us. And Linda, did you want to tell us a little bit more about the tools um, that she was just referencing? Sure. So, you know, a lot of people assume, you know, they, they look at the finished product first. A textile that was woven by Navajo could be a regional style. It could be abstract. It could be a pictorial. It could be, um, you know, any type of weaving. And so people assume, oh, yeah, this is really nicely woven. But the story behind the woven piece, that's interesting. Because I was talking to the, the brother of um, Venancio Aragon. Venancio won Best of Show at Santa Fe Indian Market about five years ago, I believe. Five or six years ago, I can't remember. And, and I have to say, Barbara was, is a two-time winner of <laughs> the Best of Show um, at Santa Fe. So, But I was talking to his brother, who is a tool maker, and we, we buy... Uh, some combs from him. My husband makes some of the tools, but sometimes I like to support other uh, tool makers. And so I was talking with him about tools and, and, um, and he goes, you know, he said, my, my, and I said, congratulations to your brother Venancio for winning the best of show. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, he won that with my tools, with the loom that I built and everything. He goes, you weavers get all the glory. Nobody ever talks about you know the the tool maker behind the curtain you know <laughs> and and that's where the magic happens and I I started thinking about it as uh, my husband and I were driving home you know it takes us nine hours to drive home and so I was talking to him about the tools and I was asking my husband what do you think of that and he goes you know he said yeah um we never nobody ever discussed the tools but the tools are significant because the tool makers have to decide how they're going to harvest the wood. We, they never harvest anything that's green. They harvest what's on the ground and they have to work with what they have. In the old days, they used a lot of scrub oak. They used a lot of um, Fiddler's shrub and all of that to make finishing tools, um, to make combs. And uh, the tool makers were also careful not to choose um, uh, fallen item or fallen limbs and everything from a tree that was struck by lightning. That, that's a little bit of taboo. And then the, the, um, the tool makers make sure that the weaver, when, when the weaver has a comb, that the comb is an extension of our hand. And so the, the number of um, fingers we have on one hand is five, which is an odd number. So the comb that you have has to have an odd number, has to have either 13 teeth, 11, 9, 7, five, three, the finishing combs uh, don't abide by that. They, they can be in even numbers. But when you start out, the holy people need to know that you're weaving. And so you take your comb and it's an extension of your hand and it should be an odd number. And um, the, the, the battens are uh, representative of the thunderbolt. And so they have to be very well made and they can't they can't flip all the time. And one of the things that um, we discovered, because we are always use tools that were that were made by our father, which, you know, he used the traditional method of making tools and all that. But when our granddaughter, Roxanne Lee, uh, we started her weaving when she was four. She's now 21. So we started her out when she was four. And her father uh, had just come out of the army, uh, Terry Lee. 
And so she would complain about her batten flipping or she would complain about her weeding tools and he would take it and try to figure out a way for her to, um, uh, to continue to weave. And so he figured out, you know, that the squared edge was better. Um, you know, the, the, uh, he put wire teeth in the combs to make it better when you're weaving way up on top so that your hand doesn't get tired. I mean, he, he was also a left-handed person. So he constructed left-handed tools that when you flip them over, it could be used for right-handers. And, you know, it, he he grew a lot with us as a tool maker. And unfortunately, he, he passed um, from COVID um, in 2020. I'm so sorry. But, um, but we owe a lot of of the innovation to him. And he initially was taught by my husband. And so the tool makers also have protocols and they, you know, and, and it may seem like a, a rug was woven magically just by the weaver. It takes the whole family. It's, it, it takes a whole family to put, you know, as a support system, um, someone to help you with the wool, someone to help you do stuff. You know, it's, it's not just a one person uh, that's weaving. It, 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 it takes the whole family. You know, it, it takes a community, actually. Yeah, and especially when he tells his wonderful stories about these family events, um, you know, with the, the gathering of the wool and it's really this start from finish family enterprise, right, in so many ways. And something we haven't talked about yet is the dyeing process. Barbara, you mentioned aniline dyes, but there's also a long tradition of finding dyes in the natural environment, which really is an art form in and of itself, because you can produce this rainbow of colors using natural dyes um, in the environment around you. Can you tell us about the use of natural dyes and perhaps introduce us to some of the master dyers that you wrote about in your wonderful book, Spider Woman's Children? Sure. Um, well, the first uh, master dyer and is Irene Clark. She was in our book and uh, we took a trip out there to see her. And the time that we did the book, I think she was around 82. Um, she's now uh, close to 90 and in the early stage of Alzheimer's, I believe. We wanted to take a trip back out to see her and um, go up the mountain with her. But her son, uh, Ferlin, told us that she has more bad days now than the good days. So it's, it's unfortunate that that has happened. But when we were writing the book, we drove to her home in Crystal, New Mexico. And uh, I have to preface this by saying that Barbara and I did not grow up doing plant dyes because in the area that we're from, it's, it's all uh, natural blending of colors. So the only thing that would get blackened was the, the black with aniline dye. And that was done over an open fire outside in a big old tin bucket or whatever. Um, and, and aniline dye is still considered natural because it's based from coal tar and, uh, and that's a natural product. And so it's really not acid dye. Um, and so we, we, we knew how to do the black with aniline dye and we knew how to whiten the white with gypsum clay. And that's a very toxic product, you know, because that's the stuff that's inside, you know, dry, uh, drywall, uh, you know, that yeah. nasty white stuff that's in there. Yeah. And so you have to be careful when you're using that because it does, you know, go up your nose and settles in your lungs and all that. And so we have to keep them in flower sacks and, um, and that's how they're dyed and that's how are whitened. When we visited uh, Irene, 
she was in her 80s and she's she did not get started uh, as a weaver until she was in her early 30s. You know, here we are, Barbara and I grew up that our, our first project probably came when we were age five or six. And here's Irene in her 30s when she finally, um, and, and her mother was a, a famous weaver. Glenda Hardy is her mother and she's a well-known weaver. And so Irene tells us the story of how she really didn't get instructional weaving from her mother. What she learned it, uh, how she learned was just by observation. But she was much more um, interested in the plant dyes because that's what her family's known for. So all those array of colors that you see in the book, that's like a quarter of what was on the fence. And that her, wow. her, her fence was really wide and we took every color. And our photographer, Joe Coco, took a lot of photos but, you know, the, we, I think um, the, uh, the Thrums people, Linda Legan and Karen Brock, only chose like a short piece to be in the book. And it, it looks wonderful. But you should, you should have seen the original lineup of all the colors that she had. And then she said, well, come to join me on my walk, right? So we're walking up the mountain. And she's 80. I can't keep up with her. And I'm just like, trying to trot right <laughs> after her and then she tells me without looking down and I'm behind her she tells me be careful where you step and I'm like what 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 she goes that's a, a little um Navajo tea sprout that's coming up and I'm like oh okay so I'm like sidestepping and I don't know what I'm doing I'm just following her and she tells me, okay, so these are plants that are going to grow up. This is rabbit brush, or this is Navajo tea, uh, wild carrot, wild parsley. You know, uh, sometimes if you can't get the greens, you can get the greens from this. And she was telling me it's seasonal. Um, you know, when you collect your plants in the springtime, you get the paler colors. Uh, midsummer with all the buds, you know, you get a little bit more. And she said, but the most intense colors come from the fall. And she said, it's just not like one day you decide you're going to get up and go and pick plants. She's, there's a process to it. You know, there's, um, and you don't always take the whole plant and you have to be real careful that you leave enough for it to continue growing. So it's not like you could, you know, hey, there's wild carrot, I'm going to take the whole thing. You don't do that. And so she really taught me uh, or us how to be respectful. Of, of when to gather, of um, all the protocols that go with it. And one thing, uh, I came back and uh, Barbara was was um, out doing something else. And I was sitting with Irene and she has stacks of photo albums. And I said, may I look? And she says, yes. So I pull it out and it was like pages and pages. And that's how our, our parents, um, our mom and our sisters had their own collection of photos of their weaving. And so Irene had the, had the same stack of albums and I was looking through it. And one of the albums I picked up, I kind of did a real quick uh, turn and it kind of fell right in the middle. And there was Barbara's business card alone in this scrapbook. And I looked at it and I said to Irene, oh, there's Barbara's business card. And Irene came over and she put her hand on my shoulder. She goes, you know, I like that girl. She's very good. And um, and I thought Navajo weavers can be fans of other weavers. And it gave me a feeling that 
you know, we may not live in the same community, but we are a community that we we can admire other weavers. And Irene was so generous in her knowledge when she was talking about her plants and how she gathers. And we we went through her wool and, you know, just kind of smelling them and um, the texture of them. Everything that she told me to touch and and put out, it was just, it was amazing. It was an amazing day that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. Dress listeners, that concludes our episode today, but not our conversation with Barbara and Linda. Today, of course, we learned about the sacred art and cultural practice in Navajo weaving. And Thursday, the sisters will be back to dive deeper into both the history and exhibition of Navajo weaving, which for well over a century have both been shaped by non-Dene voices and perspectives. Barbara and Linda have been instrumental in changing that through their numerous classes, books, and consultations on exhibitions, including the Bard Graduate Center's current exhibition, Shaped by the Loom, Weaving Worlds in the American Southwest, which is on view until July 9th. And we will talk more about their role in that exhibition and their collaboration with the curator, Hadley Jensen, on Thursday. In the meantime, you can learn more about Barbara and Linda's work, as well as see their full offering of classes at their website, www.navajorugweavers.com. That's N-A-V-A-J-O, rugweavers, with an S, dot com. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the sacred art, beauty, and cultural heritage of Navajo weaving next time you get dressed. Okay, here is the point where we introduce a long overdue announcement dress listeners as many of you know we have officially taken the show independent and with that has come a lot of changes including the fact that we are so pleased to offer you now the subscription or the option to listen to the show ad-free. You can do that for just $3 a month. And if you are, are at all interested in this, we would love for you to sign up as this is, you know, less than a cup of coffee per month. And it would really help us out as a steady source of support during this time when we have just taken the show independent. So if you're interested, you can find the link to subscribe to ad free in our link tree on Instagram. You can head over to at dressed underscore podcast and the link in our bio will provide further details about how to subscribe to ad free listening by subscribing to exclusive content. And you can also support the show there with a monthly donation if that is something that you're interested in at all. Yeah. And if you don't have Instagram, you can also find a link to our subscription in the show notes for this podcast. Mm-hmm. So we always appreciate your support, Dress listeners, as we do love hearing from you. So please email us at hello at dressedhistory.com. Dressedhistory.com is, of course, our new website where you can find more about us and the show. You can listen to episodes. You can check up out our upcoming fashion history tour info classes so much more uh, and you can also always of course direct message us on instagram at dress underscore podcast where you'll find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes and if you want to find the instagram content that is specifically connected to this episode check out the hashtag dressed 304 and dressed 305 that's dressed and the numbers 304 and dressed 305 more dressed coming your way thursday Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media.
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.